Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. Alrighty. Well, thank you so much for joining us in that this morning. Um, I'm thankful to our elders. I'm thankful to Mark for being our, our lead head elder and all the leadership that they help provide to further Christ's name in our world and in our city. Um, that, that's why we exist as a church. We want to see Jesus magnified in our lives and throughout the lives of people in our world. We we want to take the Great Commission seriously and to be faithful followers of Jesus in the time in which he has given us uh, here on this earth and here in this place. And so to do that, um, one of the things that we do every week is we open the scriptures and we study the word of God together. And so I invite you, uh, <clears throat> if you have a Bible nearby, to turn with me to the book of Genesis chapter 3. We are doing a, uh, engaged in a series on image for a couple weekends here, and uh, one of the amazing things that God has created is the human eye. It's the human eye. It's, a, it's an amazing thing. Uh, the human eye has the ability to close quickly, you know, with the eyelid and all that, if, if dust is coming in. It has the ability to, to help wipe away dust on the eye. It has the ability in dark places to get bigger so that you can see more clearly. It has the ability in harsh sun to get smaller so your eye is not harmed as much. I mean, this morning, I, I went into the room <clears throat> to wake my son up to, to get ready to come with me, and it was darker than anything in there, and I couldn't tell where I was at, and I was like, oh, I wish my eye would move a little bit more quickly. But, um, but it was slowly adjusting in those few moments to the light. Now, um, I don't know about you, but uh, Many of you here have probably been to uh, an eye doctor sometime over the course of the last few years. How many of you have done that? Okay, we've got some great eye doctor people uh, <clears throat> in the house today. Uh, it's been a few years for me, true confessions. Um, but the last time I remember I, I, I going, I, I received these drops in my eyelids or uh, in, in my eyes to dilate them. And, and so, you know, what happens when those go in after a series of time, then all of a sudden you can just see like nice and big, like everything is really sensitive to the light. But when you leave the operation, or not the operation, but the exam room, and you walk out into the blinding West Michigan sun in the summer, what happens? Yeah, you can't see a blessed thing. You want everything that you can to just kind of like shelter your eyes from all this extra light that is coming in. This is similar to what happens in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, we find that man and women's eyes are opened. But they're opened in a way that provides pain and toil and struggle. They're opened in a way that God did not desire for them to be opened. And that's the story we are going to look at this morning. Last week, we talked about the image of God, and one of the things we learned is that the word for image means to be in relationship with God and to be his witness around the world um, that he is the true king. It, it literally has this idea that kings would put these statues at the corners and, and the, the um, boundary markers of their kingdom so that people knew whose kingdom they were in by the images they saw. We're going to look at this idea of image, but we're going to look today at how the image was broken. 
and how the image became fallen and how God redeems and restores even in that case. And so would you stand with me, please, as we read Genesis chapter 3. Before we read Genesis chapter 3, would you repeat these words of Scripture after me? Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And love your neighbor as yourself. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, You must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you, won't, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together, and they made loincloths for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. They hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, Who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Then the man replied, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, What is this you've done? The woman said, it was the serpent. He deceived me, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children in anguish. Your desire, which is a desire for control, will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And he said to Adam, because you listened to your wife's voice and you ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it, for you are dust, and you will return to dust. Adam named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made clothing out of the skins for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you so much for your word to us. 
And as we, as we engage with this text today, God, I, would, I pray that you would um, open our eyes to the truth you want to show us. God, we so quickly open our eyes to the things around us and we become preoccupied by half-truths, by outright deceptions. God, we want to have eyes for what is true today. And we come to your word knowing that it is sufficient for us to walk and to grow in godliness. God, we come dependent upon your spirit knowing that it is your spirit who leads us and guides us into all truth. Lord, wherever we've come from this week, encourage us, convict us, challenge us with these words and the moving of your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Together we say, amen. Please be seated. All right, so Genesis chapter three. Um, the way I want to look at this, and we're going to focus most of our time on the first portion that I read but um, the way I want to kind of structure this for you uh, is similar to how the Moody Bible Commentary structures it. They have some big structures in that commentary, and this is not a plug for Moody, but if you, I, I get this, asked this question a few times, uh, a few times a month. Um, what, what resources are helpful for studying the Bible? Well, number one, the Bible, all right? If you don't have a Bible, get a Bible. If you need a Bible, come see me. I have plenty. I will share with you. I have Bibles on my shelf just to give. Uh, and so if you are in need of a scripture, I will make sure you have one. Um, but something else that can be really helpful is a single volume commentary. And the Moody Bible Commentary is one of many great examples of that that helps go through the flow of thought, what's happening in the text. And here's how they break this down. They, they structure this beginning portion of chapter three by essentially asking this question, how does humanity fall into sin? How does humanity fall into sin? Because that's what we experience here in Genesis chapter 3. And there are three steps that they give as we walk through the text. I'll give them to you. I'll give them to you a couple times here. Uh, the first step is this. We fall into sin by wrongly recalling God's word. Okay? By wrongly recalling God's word. Look with me, please, in Genesis 3, verses 1 and, uh, and following. 1 and 2. The serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals. In Genesis 3, 1, we have to stop there, we're introduced to a new character. It's a serpent. I hate snakes. I've always hated snakes. Really hate this snake. Uh, but the text says that he is the most cunning or the most crafty of all the beasts of the, or all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. Notice, God made this beast. God, God made this adversary. Um, scripture tells us in Ro Revelation 12 verse 9 or in Revelation 20 verse 2, they identify the serpent as the serpent of old, Satan, the adversary, the deceiver, the one who comes along and who is anti-God, who rebels against God and, and who introduces this deception into the story of humanity. The serpent was the most cunning. Now, cunning here, uh, sometimes in Scripture, the word cunning is used in a positive sense. Uh, like, like it's used, it's translated as the word discerning in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 8. But many times it's used in a negative sense, and that's how it's used here. It's used similar to how it's used in Psalm 83, verse 3, where um, the person is described, er, where Psalm 83 describes the enemies of God as being crafty. 
because they seek to conspire against God's people and to do them harm. That's the idea of crafty or cunning here with the serpent. The serpent was the most cunning, the most crafty of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he says to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? All right? Remember, step one of falling into sin is wrongly recalling God's word. And what we see here at the beginning of chapter three is the serpent instills doubt about God's word. All right? Now, Adam, Adam, he, he knew what God said because in Genesis chapter two, which we'll look at in just a moment, God gives him the parameters for life in the garden. He gives him parameters for life that is holy and righteous and good, for walking in relationship, for being the image bearer that God always intended him to be. But in the midst of this, the serpent instills doubt about the character and the commands of God. And he speaks to both the man and the woman. It's interesting here because all the yous, like, <clears throat> excuse me, in verse 1, it says, you can't eat from the tree of the garden. It's a plural you. He's talking to Adam and Eve in proximity. But it's interesting because the text says in verse 1 that he says to the woman, did God really say you all can't do this? We know Adam is there with her. We find that out later in the passage. But he directs this question to um, the woman, and they engage in this conversation. In Genesis 3 verse 2, he comes to the woman and he says this. He says, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? So the serpent begins to cast doubt about the character of God. And God provided everything that mankind needed to grow and to thrive. In fact, Scripture says that he created all things good and that he created mankind very good. And so they have this dialogue, though. The woman says to the serpent in verse 2, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden. What about the, free, the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden? God said, You must not eat it or touch it or you will die. Now, it's helpful to ask at this point, what did God really say, <laughs> right? All right, so we have the serpent who says, did God really say you can't eat from the fruit? And she goes, no, we can eat from the fruit. We just can't eat from that tree. What did God say? Look back with me at Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Now, the woman is not created yet. It's just Adam at this point. And it says in chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and he placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and to watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from the, any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat it, you will certainly die. All right? On the day you eat this tree, this tree alone, you will certainly die. God's intention, notice this, God's intention in Genesis 2:15 is to provide freedom for his image bearers. It's to give them a context in which they would flourish, in which they would grow, in, in which they would properly be the people whom he created them to be. After all, he is their creator. He has a, an idea about what it means to speak and the world becomes. He, he has an idea how to have intentionality behind everything. In fact, as scripture said, he calls them very good. He wants them to live a very good life. The emphasis in Genesis 2 is that God wants them to liberally enjoy all the good gifts he has given them. 
But in enjoying all the good gifts, they must keep themselves from the one thing which will cause great harm, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God gives the reason why to them, because on the day you eat of it, you will certainly die. God wants to provide freedom. And yet what the serpent brings up is, did God really say you can't eat from a tree? You see the difference? God says, I want you to enjoy this. The serpent says, God doesn't want you to enjoy anything. And the two could, couldn't be any further. The serpent's focus is on what they can't eat. See, God's not, as some people might think, God is not a divine killjoy. When God um, provides instruction and parameters, he does so because he cares. He does so because he wants his children to flourish the way that he created them. And so when we engage in things outside of God's parameter, what often and always, not often, what always happens is things are inserted into our life that cause pain, that cause struggle, that cause this doubt or this break of a relationship with God. When we tell a lie, we feel conviction. When, when we're harsh towards someone, the Holy Spirit begins to work on us, and we go, oh, man, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have said it in that way. When we step outside the boundaries of the way God has created us as men and women to function in appropriate relationships, difficulty, toil, struggle, a breaking of our relationship with God enters in. God knows what is good for us, and his teaching, his command is go and enjoy, but enjoy in this context. It's kind of like uh, if you have a big stove at home, you know, either a, like a cooking stove or maybe a wood heating stove. If you have little kids around, one of the things you, you try to teach them early on is don't touch the hot stove. <laughs> because if you do, you're going to get burned. Uh, one time I was pulling a pan out of the oven and I was wearing an oven mitt. And I didn't know that the oven mitt had a little bit of a wet spot on it. And the pan was about 450 degrees. And I ended up with a second degree burn on my hand because it touched it for about five seconds before I could get it off. And it hurt for months. I know you can't see the scar anymore. But my point is this. Just like we have boundaries that we place around our kids or we place around ourselves to, to keep us in a a living pattern that would be safe and a living pattern that would be wise for our own hearts, for our own lives. God says, I want to place you and I want you to enjoy, but don't engage in this because if you do, on the day you eat it, you will certainly die. All right? So the first part in stepping towards sin and falling towards sin is wrongly recalling God's word. The second step in falling into sin is wrongly assessing God's purpose. Verse 4 here in chapter 3 says, No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Um, now, what does he mean here by you will not die? 
Because if we read the story through, we find that God expels, drives out the man and the woman from the garden, and they're not allowed to be there, but they don't physically die that day. What does he mean by you will certainly die on the day that you eat of this? And there's two ways that we can look at death as we think about this. Um, The first one is physical life and physical death. Now, the the garden that God created was a place of life, and included in this was eating from the tree of life. I I didn't read this verse, but um, in verse 22 of chapter 3, it says that the Lord God said, since man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, and eat forever. And so God drives them away. Um, ancient Israel, as they, as they travel through the wilderness, if there is a, a, a harsh sin, an unrepentant sin in the community, if there is even something like a skin disease that would cause defilement and cause it to spread, people would be placed outside of the camp. Um, one of the things that happens when you're placed outside of the camp is you're placed outside of the protection of the community. You're placed outside the provision of the community. It, See, we're, we're not autonomous people. Think about everything you did this morning. You woke up. Maybe some of you had an alarm that was powered by electricity that was produced by somewhere other than your home, most likely, unless you've got one of those solar, you know, things. But even if you have a solar thing, I bet you didn't build it. We're dependent upon other people. You got up and you had food this morning. You probably bought that food at a grocery store. You pro- or maybe you grew it yourself, maybe you can it yourself, good for you, but if you can it yourself, I bet you didn't make your own jar, right? Unless you're really good, that's like incredible if you're doing that kind of stuff. Um, you, you, you woke up this morning and you got clothed with material that was probably made somewhere else, right? We are dependent people. We like to think that we are independent. Some of us may be more independent than others, but we are dependent people. And, and what God does is he essentially says as a result of their sin, he drives them out of the garden. And in doing so, they're driven away from the tree of life that would give them life eternal. And, and, and they're driven away to experience the inevitability of physical death. When they left that garden, they knew the clock was ticking. So, on the one hand, what does it mean on the, on the day that you eat, you will certainly die? Well, death was now inevitable. So, that's one way we can look at this phrase um, of death. Um, but the second way, and perhaps the strongest way, is that when they ate of the fruit that God commanded them not to eat, it forever changed their spiritual life. Be- because we're, we're not just physical beings— God has imparted to us part of his image. And part of his image means that we have the imprint of God upon our life. We we are built for relationship with God. And when Adam and Eve sinned against God, that image, that relationship became shattered. It it became shattered. The immediate consequence of death is, would be relational separation from God. Eden provided, the Garden of Eden provided all that Adam and Eve needed for this life, including a spiritual relationship with God. Now, we don't have the same experience. We we don't know what it means to walk with the Lord in the cool of the day, (laughs) to have him come down and have this 
unbroken relationship where he asks us, hey, Adam, what'd you name that animal over there? And we go, and Adam goes, camel. And he's like, interesting name. Um, we, we don't have that kind of relationship because of being always existing in a fallen world. Adam and Eve began life with an intact spiritual relationship with the Lord. They felt no shame, and they walked with God. Yet they experienced this immediate severing of unhindered relationship with God as God begins to explain the consequences of their choice, and he drives them from the garden. See, see God's purpose is to keep them as he created them as his image bearers. You see, God never intended them to become like God. He intended them to bear the image of God, of himself. And the difference is really um, big. Um, it's one thing to be, seek to become like God, to take God's place. It's a whole other thing to say, God, let me be your image bearer in the context you have placed for me. God desires to keep them from experiencing the effects of this knowledge of good and evil. But what the serpent tempts them with is, you know, the day you eat of this, your eyes are going to be opened and you are going to be like God, knowing good and evil. What is knowledge? What is knowledge? Because central to this knowing good and evil is having this idea of knowledge. One writer says that knowledge is the capacity to make independent judgments concerning human welfare. Another writer describes knowledge as wisdom for making decisions in life. And he says this, he says, to pursue knowledge without reference to revelation, being revelation from God, is to assert human autonomy. See, because Proverbs 1.7 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. To have knowledge, according to the biblical definition, it comes from God. My, my, my favorite description of knowledge um, says this by Dr. Abraham Kuruvila. He says, the emphasis of the author of Genesis is not on the substance or the content of the knowledge, in other words, what is specifically good or bad, but rather on man's moral autonomy and his seeking to make moral judgments without privileging divine revelation. What does that mean? It means this. In pursuing a knowledge of good and evil... Adam and Eve sought to gain wisdom separate from God. They, they, they sought to say, I am autonomous. I can handle this. I should know. It's kind of like saying, let me make my own decisions. I will decide what is best. I, the human, am the final arbiter of what is good. That's the idea of pursuing the knowledge of good and evil. It's pursuing the, in my eyes, this is what looks good. But see, that's not how God created it. God being the creator who set and who ordered all of these things, it's not how he created it because he created us as dependent people. He created us as dependent people on him. That's 
how we were created to bear his image. And every time we step away and we begin to define for ourselves that which is true and that which is right, we begin to replace God in his role and we insert ourselves into it. So, step one of falling into sin is wrongly recalling God's word. Step two is wrongly assessing God's purpose. Step three is wrongly approving what seems good. What seems good? Wrongly approving of what seems good. In Genesis 1 verse 12, it says this, God saw that it was good. All right, in Genesis 1.18, it says this, and God saw that it was good. Yeah, you're, you're catching on, okay? Um, so God makes some more things because he says this after several things he makes. And so God makes some more things, and in Genesis 1.21, it says, and God saw that it was good. Now, in Genesis 1.31, mankind has been created, male and female, made in his image, the way he intended it. And God saw that it was almost, he says, very good. Yeah, I love the enthusiasm over here. This side, this side is a little more awake, I feel, than this side today. Just wake up, everybody. <laughs> um, yeah, and God saw that it was very good. Very good. All right? God, God creates it, and then he gives it its quality. You're good. You're good. You're good. You are very good. God alone can, can um, put this descriptor on his creation. He declares it to be very good when he creates humankind. And this declaration is made by God in the context of God created mankind in his image. That God's blessing was given to them to provide seed and to provide food for them. He commanded them to be fruitful and to fill the earth, the first command of the scripture. And he commanded them um, to subdue and to rule and to care for and to steward the earth that he had made. But when Eve ate in Genesis 3, and she gave to Adam who was with her and he ate, here's what happened. They sought to define good apart from God. They sought to define good apart from God. Notice with me, please, verse 6. Then the woman saw that the tree, this is the tree of knowledge of good and evil, she saw that it was good. This tree was not good because God said, don't eat it. And in seeing in her own eyes that this tree was good, she sought to define something differently than God. In other words, she sought to be God herself. She wanted to be like God. She wanted to take the authority of God. She wanted to take the place of God. But the problem is, is that's not how she was created. She was created to have a relationship with God, to be dependent upon God, to, to enjoy the good gifts of God, she and her husband. She gave to Adam who was with her and he ate. They sought to redefine good. And the result is that their eyes were opened. But their eyes were opened not to wisdom, 
but to life and all of its effects outside of God's good parameters. Step one, of falling into sin, wrongly recalling God's word. Step two, wrongly assessing God's purpose. Step three, wrongly approving of what seems good. The result of redefining good according to her eyes is found in the text. She took some of his fruit. She ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. Something that they did not know before. They sewed fig leaves together, and they made loincloths for themselves. We find out in a couple of verses um, that one of the effects of this feeling, verse 10 says, when God comes and, and he's looking for them, mankind re- responds, Adam responds, he says, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid. Why was he afraid? Because he was naked. And so he hid. The effect of having their eyes open to the knowledge of good and evil was shame entered the world guilt into the world. And now, what would God do? What would God do? As Eve traded God's instruction for the wisdom found in a tree, we find here, you just imagine how broken their hearts must have been. Imagine the guilt that you have felt over sin in your life. Imagine being for the first time, a relationship that has been good all the way along, now it's shattered. See, when God created Adam and Eve, he created them that when they looked in a mirror, they would see everything that God intended them to see. I have to get this right here. See, he he created them to look in a mirror and to see the image that he printed on them. And as they became um, autonomous, as they sought to redefine their identity apart from God, what happened, I don't know if you can see that, what happened is what happened to the bottom of this mirror got shattered. God wanted them to see exactly what he created them for, exactly what he created them to do. But their eyes are opened when they choose to define good apart from God. And when they look in the mirror, they see broken pieces. They see lines where they shouldn't be. They they see sagging skin. They see less hair. (laughs) They see the effect of the broken world that they now live in. What would God do? What would God do? For those of you on the live stream, I hope that's not blinding to you. What would God do? As we read through the next several verses, um, I'm going to summarize a couple of things here quickly for you. Um, God comes to them. They have this conversation. He says, what is this you've done? 
He asks the man who told you you were naked, did you eat from the tree I command you not to eat? See, God goes straight for what the actual issue is. He confronts it. He doesn't sit by and say, hey, tell me how you feel about this. He says, wait, did you do what I told you not to do? And notice what the man says. He says, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me from the fruit of the tree and I ate. Now, mind you, Adam was there. Adam should have stepped in. Adam, who was commanded by God, here's how I want you to live, who, who knew, should have stepped in. So then he, the Lord turns to the woman, and he says, what is this you've done? And the woman says, it was the serpent. He deceived me, and I ate. And here we have all the effects, starting in verse 14, of sin that have entered the world. First off, the Lord God says to the serpent, you are cursed. Ooh, pretty harsh and important. You are cursed, he says, more than any livestock, more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He will strike your head, you will strike his heel. And here we have a messianic foreshadowing of the seed of the woman, the Messiah, who would come and strike the head of the serpent. He says to the woman, he says, I'm going to intensify your labor pains. You will bear children in anguish. You will have this desire for control for your husband, and yet he will rule over you. This is not how God intended it to be, but this is the result. He says in verse 17, he says to Adam, because you listened to your wife's voice and you ate from the tree about which I commanded you, don't eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life, and it will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat the bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the earth, since you were taken from it, for you are dust, and you will return to dust. In other words, the creation he made is going to return to that which he made, or return to that which was before. But in verse 20, Adam named his wife Eve, which means life, um, because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God, notice this in verse 21, the Lord God made clothing out of the skins for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. I find that fascinating that God puts that in there, because even in these early chapters in Genesis, we find out that God is not going to leave it broken and shattered. As he takes the life of an animal, which had never happened up until this point. As he takes the life of the animal, he begins to teach them what happens when we sin is it causes death. And yet he begins to picture how he will make a way for his people. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? I want to give you a couple of thoughts as we close. Remember, how does humanity fall into sin? By the way, this is very true of us here today as well. How do we fall into sin? Step one was wrongly recalling God's word. One of the ways to be the image bearers that God has created and intended us to be is to not allow our image to be defined by the shattered parts of our life. Not to be allowing our image to be defined by the brokenness we see around us, rather to let our image be defined by who God says we are, without blemish, without cracking. How do we do this? Well, Scripture teaches us that God's word is to constantly be before us. It is actually to be on our lips, he says in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Um, truth that we teach to our families each day. 
In other words, we, we are to be disciples. And a disciple is simply this, a daily follower of Jesus. A, a disciple is not someone who picks up on Sunday and says, okay, I'm going to get my Jesus for the week and then I'm going to go on the rest of the week and not engage in a relationship with God. See, because God wants to engage in a relationship with us every single day. A disciple is one who embraces walking with God in every form of their life. Psalm 119 verse 11 says this, when it comes to understanding the proper recollection of God's word, it says, your word I have hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. John chapter 14, Jesus says, if you love me, you obey my teaching. Central to reclaiming the image that God wants us to bear is to have the word of God constantly before us and to obey. When we said um, the Shema this morning, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the, the word hear there in Hebrew, it's the word Shema. Can you say Shema? Shema. It means to hear, to listen, or to obey. All right, that's, that's the actual definition of the word. To hear, to listen, to obey. It has nothing to do with just hearing with your ears. It has everything to do with hearing with your ears, obeying with your hearts, and walking it out by God's grace. When he says, hear, O Israel, he means listen up. He means obey. I want you to love me with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, or all your might. And I want you to love your neighbor as yourself. Putting the words of God before us is absolutely vital in an age where we are constantly distracted and filled with a lot of things that seek to give us a different identity. We look at the news and we've, we see how they want to redefine who we are as made in God's image. We, we look at magazines or we look at sports and we seek to find our identity and to find our value and our worth in those things. And God says, that's not where your worth is. I may have created you with the ability to do this, but I didn't create you to be that image bearer. It says I created you to be my image bearer. Constantly, we must have the word of God before us. A practice I have been trying um, for the past several weeks uh, here, well, since Christmas, Christmas time, is to properly spend my time. I get distracted by a lot of things. You know, if you're on the computer and you're like, oh, hey, there's this over here. Oh, that's an interesting news story. I'll go ahead and read that. Or I'll become um, consumed with the latest report on, name it. Um, one of the things I have been seeking to do is to have more image-bearing stuff in my life, put it that way, than to have um, non-image-bearing stuff in my life. What I mean is this. If, if I spend um, 30 minutes a day reading news, I want to spend more than 30 minutes a day reading my Bible. I want to have the Word of God central in my life. If, if I'm going to listen to music, I want that to be something that edifies. And, and where there are things, because like the news is not always edifying, um, but I want to be informed... <laughs> How do I balance that out? And I'm wrestling through this. Um, but I think part of it is having more godly content and godly words in my life than not godly. And to prioritize the word of God in my life first and allowing the other things that I might need to consume to be informed or just for enjoyment second. It's really a reordering of the priorities. So 
as you leave today and you think about, well, all right, how could I bear God's image more effectively in my life? How do you spend your time? Do you spend your time allowing the word of God to dwell in you richly? Or are there other things that dwell in you richly? All right, that's one thing for you to think about. How do you spend your time? How might God want you to redefine that time so that you can have the truth of God in your, before you, more constantly and effectively? That's one thing. Um, Second thing, where do we seek to find wisdom? Um, There's a whole lot of stuff going on. Uh, in science, in philosophy, and in news, and between friendships. And a lot of times, we seek to find our wisdom from sources outside of God. Now, God can use godly people to help give us wisdom. That, that, that's, that's a wise spiritual principle. We often say in the office, um, th- this is like a three heads are better than one <laughs> thing, you know, where, where you want to find the godly counselors around you to give wisdom to an issue that you're facing, you're trying to wrestle through. But when we seek to find wisdom, we always have to then take that wisdom that we're hearing, whether it be from society and culture or from people or from our own head and say, all right, does this square with what God is teaching us in his word? And if it doesn't, why not? See, we must have our mind and our hearts before God's word constantly so that we know what God's truth is, but then we have to seek to then apply it. Where do you find wisdom? Where do you find wisdom? Do you test the wisdom that you hear? Do you test the information you hear against the word of God? What areas of your life are you experiencing conflict? What experience or areas of your life do do you wonder, oh, I just don't know what to do in this? Have you gone to God's word for it? Have you asked a trusted friend, family member, and say, can you help me biblically think through what I should do here? That's a great question. Can you help me biblically think through? Because if you come to me and you ask my, my opinion, I'd like to say I'd always give you scripture's opinion, but sometimes I might just give you my gut reaction to something, and it may not be scripture. You should test everything I say, <laughs> against the word of God as well. All right? How, how do we spend our time? Where do we find wisdom? Lastly, um, we live in a world where we experience eyes wide open. We all have people in our lives who have experienced the pain and the toil and the struggle of sin, who seek to redefine their lives according to what they see around them. Some of them just don't know any better sometimes. To be image bearers in this world, God wants us to speak truth, God's truth, into the lives of people around us. You may have people in your, in your family or in your friend network or 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 somehow connected with you who are struggling through um, anxiety or depression. Remind them of who they are in Christ. Remind them of God's presence even on the lowest of days. You, You might have people who are victims of abuse in your family or in your sphere. Remind them that God loves them and God cares for them. That he's created them with purpose and intentionality. And even in their pain, they can find meaning and wholeness in Christ.
you might have people in your sphere who are walking down a path and they're flirting with things that are very dangerous for their heart and their mind. Things that will take them further away from God. Things that will cause them to redefine their image based upon this. Remind them of what God calls them to. Not in like a club that beats them on the head, But friends, we must speak truth to one another because if we don't speak truth, what happens is we touch hot stoves and we burn ourselves. (laughs) What, What happens if we don't begin to speak words of clarity and truth that give an accurate reflection of who God intended for us to be, what ends up is we help people just look more and more broken. God has placed people in your life. God has placed people in my life. I won't name them for you publicly. But God has placed people in our lives who need to hear who Jesus is and what he has done for them. See, back in the garden, God slaughters an animal and he gives them that skin. And by doing so, he he gives this picture of what he would one day do by sending his son, his son, to die and to raise again from the grave so that our identities might be refashioned the way God wants it to be. Let's pray. Our Father and our King, how broken we find ourselves some days. And yet, God, you have come to redeem and to restore. You have, you have come that we might find our identity in Jesus, our Messiah. You say in the book of Ephesians, God, to put off the old self, the old man or way of living, and to put on Christ, to learn Christ, and to allow his life to define who we are and how we act. And I pray, God, this morning, this time that we have engaged in your word, God, that we would be reminded that you have created us to bear your image. You have created us with purpose and intentionality. Each one of us, God, has purpose and meaning and value in this life, regardless of our age, regardless of our background, regardless of any other thing, God, because we are made in your image, we have inherent value to you. And God, you call us to come to you, and God, we come this morning. We come that our hearts and our minds might not drive what we do, but that the word of God and the spirit of God who leads us into truth would redefine for us again. Would redefine for us again what it means to be made in your image. Thank you, God, for providing all that we need. I may pray that a lot, but God, it is good to be thankful for the blessings that come from your hand. As we walk out of here today, God, give us wisdom to know the things that cause us to take our eyes and our minds off of you, to reorder our lives and our priorities in a way that would instill the image of God back into us. And God, as we think about engaging our world with all the broken images that we see, God, may we be mirrors that reflect to them who they are in Christ, and may we speak the truth that we ourselves are learning and seeking to live by your grace. 
We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Oh, thank you. All right. I've been handed a paper from the budget vote. There were, I have to read these things. Um, there's a total of 100 votes. Some of you like the details, so I'll give you the details. Um, there's a total of 100 votes. There is 98, 98 yeses. There's two absentees. There are no zeros. So I'm told by this it's a 100% vote. Yep, okay. We like to be forthright and all that. If you have any questions about that, talk to Pastor Tom. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Would you stand with me? Friends, as we head out into a world, um, a world of people, lives who have been touched by sin in our world, God, is, as we enter out into a world where we seek oftentimes to define reality and define good by our standard, may we pray that God would give us wisdom and discernment that he would instill within us a passion to hear his word and to obey it, to define good by God's definition, and to love other people in that same way. May we seek to be image bearers who reflect the glory of God into the world, such that, as Matthew's gospel says, let your light shine so that men may see your good deeds and they might praise your Father who is in heaven. May the love of God go with you.